This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Humans, under the right circumstances, have extraordinary capacities for forgiveness and kindness and love and generosity. And that if you put us in networks of people where we have to, you know, look at each other, um, break bread together, um, hang out, learn a little bit something about each other. And if um, and inside of those networks, their reputational costs to bad behavior. Right. So. So in other words, I mean, that's one of the things that community does for you is that you you want to continue to maintain your relationship. You want to you know honor the people you're in a relationship with. And um, and when those circumstances exist, I people are extraordinary. We really are. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At The Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at The Village Square, we make pigs fly. Hey folks, welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Corey Nathan and I am so glad to be with you again. Thank you for joining us for Being Human in Divided Times, a fireside chat with Village Square founder, Liz Joyner. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Check out Florida Humanities online at floridahumanities.org. That's www.floridahumanities.org. I'm sure you'll appreciate this conversation that I was honored to have with the Village Square's founder and CEO, Liz Joyner. This has been long overdue, but we get to dive into Liz's background, what she did vocationally before founding the Village Square, the impetus for starting this organization. And of course, we had to get into some of the problems that ail us in our shared Village Square, as well as what we can all do about it. With that, let's get to this fireside chat with our very own Liz Joyner. This is a very special Village Square cast because our very special guest is our very own Liz Joyner. And a lot of folks, I, I'm not gonna say take Liz for granted, but in a way we, we got, I, I thought it would be very, very special. Oh, I didn't introduce myself. I'm Corey. <laughs> Sometimes, <laughs> An important part of yeah, the conversation. Yeah. Sometimes you hear me before the podcast and after the podcast, but here I am on the regular podcast and I get to moderate and interview our very own Liz. So it's not that we take uh, Liz Joyner for granted. It's just that she does so much. She's almost ubiquitous with this organization that I thought we, we all thought it would be a good idea to have Liz as the special guest. So, Everyone except Liz thought that, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. So with that, our special guest, Liz Joyner, is the founder and CEO of The Village Square. For friends of The Village Square, did you know that this very organization was named by former U.S. Senator Olympia Snow as one of eight organizations to support if you're concerned about the deepening partisan divide? Liz has a master's degree in social work, conceptualizing Village Square 
after her experience working in politics convinced her that the way we work out our disagreements in today's public square is fundamentally flawed. She was nominated by Leadership Tallahassee as Leader of the Year in 2010, named by Tallahassee Democrat as one of 25 women you need to know in 2015, by the Girl Scouts as a woman of distinction in 2016, and was honored by United Church Women as a woman of peace. She's also a Knight Foundation Fellow, a participant of in the 2015 Conclave on Political Polarization, and will soon be designated as an Aishas Haya, a woman of, of valor, by my dear old dad's synagogue. But I bet Liz didn't even know that last part, did you? Oh, that's pretty great. <laughs> you should have led with that, Corey. That's an honor. That is a special honor, which means that you'll be invited to the next Passover Seder if uh, if we happen to be in the same town at the same you know same time. That's pretty fabulous. I think I need to make sure I'm in the same town. It's a, it's a ton of fun, especially if my parents, who are you know full on New York Jewish, you know, and and they're leading the Seder. Phyllis is just you know she she is what almost every sitcom Italian or Jewish mother is based on. So, oh, that's fabulous. Yeah, that's yeah. that's great. That's that's the way I like them. My, <laughs> my mom 2.0 growing up that describes go. her. So, well, that's a great segue. So I was really curious. You grew up in the D.C. area where your dad worked at the Pentagon. Was your mom in politics as well or, or worked for government? Uh, no, she was a stay at home mom. And they used to tease every time election um, ran, uh, came around. They said that they were going to cancel each other out. <laughs> And they they marched to the polls and voted for opposite candidates way, way back in the day. So that had something to do probably with how I got here. I, you know, I kind of find that that a lot of people in this space have family members who believe different things about politics. Yeah. You know, I, I was I was curious about that. I, I I'd heard that you have a brother that was a Navy SEAL. I've heard you describe yourself as left of center politically, even though you're our, this organization is nonpartisan and you very, right. very careful to keep it so. Um, did you have other brothers and sisters or j just your brother? I, I also have a sister. Okay. And ha does everyone fall a little bit differently politically? I was curious what the, uh, you know, what those, what those family dinners looked like in, in the DC area growing up in your, in your family's house. So it's weird because I would say that mostly we were characterized by sort of we're a public service family and I wouldn't say that I thought we talked about politics all that much um it'd be outside of that right and I I do think it was a different time in that uh people weren't really highly identified around their uh political um beliefs uh, you know interesting I would say that a, a childhood experience was really formative for me in fact I in some ways I kind of feel like um the village square is the house that Vic Gold built. And that is the dad of my best friend growing up. And he was very involved in politics. And and he his his politics were different than mine. Um he was he uh he worked for um good friends with the Bush family, and he was actually um Agnew's press secretary up to a certain point in time. Oh wow. And, and so um the conversations that we would have about civic life and ideas and politics at the Gold's house, while different from my own, um, were riveting and fascinating. And Mr. Gold was just animated and he had these just really strong beliefs around politics. But we'd, you know, we'd have these, you know, we'd dive in and everyone had these different ideas and 
it was passionate. And then when the conversation was over, it would be like, uh, Mr. Gold made it clear that we were all good friends and that there was an amazing amount of respect between us people who disagreed. And I think having seen it early on in my life and, and between people who have foundational respect for each other and just, you know, his role modeling, I think, you know, made me very disquieted when I when I felt like that wasn't what our civic environment was anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So were some of those conversations, is that what inspired you to study what you because you studied social work in undergrad? I did. It's hard for me to know. I guess I've sort of always been kind of a peacemaker. Um, but I, my specialization was I, I, um, I studied psychology undergrad and then graduate school. I got a degree in social work and and uh, my specialization was in family therapy. So systems therapy, sort of um, how families fit together as units and, and how sometimes there's dysfunctions that hurt everyone. And so I would say that I just graduated to very large family when I, I started say, the village square. I was going to say, I mean, that, that must've been good prep for politics. <laughs> it, it, it kind of is. Yes, it was. And, and actually so many, the way that, that, you know, we've come to see so many of the challenges we have is it's it's systemic, right? It's you push here and something changes that you don't really expect to. And there's um, equal and opposite reactions and kind of a dysfunctional system. And so it's it's maybe a little bit more like it than I, I wish it were. Yeah. Yeah. So so you, you after college, you, you went for a graduate degree uh, and you, but you didn't start Village Square right away. What were some of the jobs that you've had along the way? Um. So my first jobs were inpatient um, psychiatric jobs. And so that was when I sort of learned my trade. I, I was under the wing of psychiatrists and clinical social workers to learn how to do therapy. Um, but it was in an inpatient setting. So people who were in, you know, in, in real desperate um, emergencies and crisis in their lives. Um, and then my next job was... Uh, working in the second judicial circuit uh, where we were legal guardians of um, adults who had been adjudicated incompetent for various reasons. And so that too was, you know, sort of being involved in systems that were complex and challenging. Um, I've, I've always been, uh, my early hero um, was Dr. King and I would read every book I could get my hands on uh, about his life and, you know, growing up in, in the shadow of, you know, the March on Washington. And I, I just always, it, that always spoke to my soul, probably had a lot to do with my choice of career. And then I, then I became a mom. And so it wasn't until after I was a mom and our politics seems to have gone further and further South that I had this harebrained idea. <laughs> so I have some follow-up questions. One is, it, for those who've really deeply read Dr. King's work, were you, did you also pull on some of the theological threads? Because as you commented, our, our politics has fallen off, not fallen off a cliff, but it, it's really degenerated in, in a lot of ways. And part of what we're looking at is that intersection of politics and theology or politics and religion. Uh, but the, the theology of a Christian 
uh, a deeply rooted Christian like uh, Dr. Dr. King uh, looks very different than a lot of the more prominent, uh, say, evangelicals of today. Did you did you dive into that at all? So I would say that I didn't know I didn't start there. So I, I don't give myself a ton of credit for having conceptualized this thing all the way out. I didn't start there, but I definitely have come back around to it. Yeah. I, I um, you know, I think I think as a young person, his his belief in who we could be together as a country, living into those highest ideals that were 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 birthed with the Declaration and um, and the Constitution, but um, were 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 not um, it, you know it with the promissory note right that he describes. Um, I, I think that those things together spoke deeply to my soul at the time. And and um, and I think that it's only later that I started to really understand the depths of his wisdom that that were spiritual. And in in, um, in many ways, I think I think King, as I also think our framers, um, which I can kind of consider him one of, yeah. um, were. Um, incredible students of human nature and i and i think dr king came by that through his faith as well uh he he understood humans he understood um that you know kind of the challenge that was ahead of him and the the sort of high high plateau that people had to rise to and the anger they had to overcome right to be able to keep moving that vision of who we could be together forward. It's really hard to do, right? I mean, there his cause was righteous. And um and yet still, you know, um, as we know from, you know, our our, our another hero of mine, Dr. Jonathan Haidt, you know, <laughs> I um, was just thinking of Haidt. Yeah. I, <laughs> my next question is sort of about that. Um you know, humans, we we are righteous. We do, we tend to um, to come at problems like this by by you know by not necessarily our own best behavior, right? And so he would sit. We we have um we have had the pleasure of having a program about um, Patricia Stevens Dew, who is one of the most amazing civil rights leaders that you may not have known about, and she was local to our Tallahassee community, um, but she was involved in one of the first jail ins. And it's only through studying her work that I understood what King did. He 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 taught these young people how to succeed in this incredibly extraordinary uh, task ahead of them in a way that that you you know we have continued to use as a model in the work we do. So you mentioned Jonathan Haidt. I was also th thinking of some other guests that you've had on, and you're you're an avocational student of great sociologists of our time. Arthur Brooks comes to mind. Um, yes. the, the, the other John, not the other John, but you know, another great student of of what's happening in our time, uh, John Rausch. So with your with who your, is extraordinary, it is extraordinary. A Constitution yeah. of Knowledge should be a textbook that's studied. Uh, in in every high school and college uh, civics class, I think agree completely. Yeah. So you and with your background in psychology, psychiatry, uh, combined with that sociological avocational engagement, what would you say that 
we're suffering from a greater degree of, I won't say pure mental illness, but mental fragility in a way. Like we're, we're, we're closer to that, um, that, that b- being sick as a, as a populace and in, uh, all of us individually, or is it something that we're just more aware of and there's more diagnoses? What are your thoughts about that? So I think that the evolution and some really major trends in society, which we're all suffering under. So um, in the digital environment, it's so great that you and I can hang out with each other from across the country, but there's a lot of other things that come with that digital environment. And we're, we're in an environment where it's much harder for us to be healthy. It's much harder for us to find the things that really do feed human souls. Um, and, and, you know, largely that's each other. Um, and, and so we're having a crisis of belonging, a crisis of understanding um, as we are increasingly, you know, behind our keyboards and our relationships with each other are, are distant. Um, and so, so yeah, I think that, I, I think we're all sort of experiencing a really understandable kind of mass human tragedy yeah that, that we're not that we're doing the wrong things to work our way out of you know we we seem to like be believing that somehow if only those people were just neutralized if they weren't there here and that if we were doing exactly what it is we thought was the right thing to do then we'd all be fine when when really we we need more of quote unquote those people in our lives you know yeah. because i mean going along with john Rausch's thesis, which I uh, really deeply believe that, you know, we're, we're all, we all can only see a part of the whole. And we need people who see things really differently than us to be able to understand things better. But then at a, at a very deep and human level, um, we need those relationships in our lives in, in a way that, um, that, that, that we just, we aren't right now. And, and so to me, we're like, to me, it's very, this is fixable. It's fixable, but we're doing all the wrong things in our, our minds to fix it. Well, I want to dive into this a little bit more, but before we move on from a little bit about your background and, and your personal story, I've heard, but I haven't seen that you, uh, something about your hobby, something about quilts or something is, I was curious what your hobbies are. And if I'm right about the whole quilt thing, t- tell me more about that, how that came about and any other hobbies that I, that uh, folks might not know about. Man, you do your homework, Corey Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you pay me the big bucks for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I um, used to, although I, there's just not enough time anymore, but I used to actually die my own fabric. Um, I would do things like um, doing like, um, you know, uh, uh, you know how you can expose uh, the sun to fabric or, or um, paper. And I think it's called sinotyping. Um, and it turns fabric blue um, around in white around designs. And I would do dyeing. I would then cut it into little pieces and make quilts out of them. And relative to this work, I would say my, um, my opus was a huge American flag. It's like five by seven feet. I actually made two of them, um, one for each of our daughters. And it was to honor the, our family members who had served in, and in some cases died in um, in service to the country. 
And so I, you know, I took people's, I took, um, I took rubbings of my father-in-law's name off the Vietnam wall. Um, I uh, took my father, my grandfather and my brother's commission papers, and they're all sort of woven into that quilt, which I called threads, threads of a nation. However, I do not still do that because I'm I'm kind of metaphorically stitching things together these days. Okay. So um, I have I have a related question. I've never asked this kind of a question uh, of anyone, but uh, of you, I was really really curious how you would answer it. Uh, I, I call it the the universal, truly universal bridging divides question. Um, and if I'm taking you off guard, we can certainly come back to it at the end. Okay. If citizens from a far off universe, not Earth, were to come down to Earth and consider the possibility that the human species was just too much trouble and needed to be exterminated, <laughs> but you were a diplomat and, and you were making a case for humanity, how, how would you go about that? You can use a rhetorical argument, uh, history, sketches from history, cultural artifacts, um, theological premises, anything you like. How might how might you do that? All right, so I'm going to jump right into it. I might think of a better um, a, a a better argument later. So I'm going to put a pin in it and be able to come back to it. Sure. But 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 here is my argument, and it's based on um, it's it's based on this experience we've had all these years, and that is that humans under the right circumstances have ex extraordinary capacities for forgiveness and kindness and love and generosity. And that if you put us in networks of people where we have to, you know, look at each other, um, break bread together, um, hang out, learn a little bit, something about each other. And if, um, and inside of those networks, there are reputational costs to bad behavior, right? So, so in other words, I mean, that's one of the things that community does for you is that you you want to continue to maintain your relationship. You want to, you know, honor the people you're in a relationship with, and um, and when those circumstances exist, I people are extraordinary. We really are. Uh, and and we see the most amazing things happen between people who we would never expect it to happen to if those circumstances exist. And the problem is, increasingly, they are not existing. Uh, the the face-to-face -face community of people who owe each other something, um, who, who um, you know, I, I have, I've been surprised and amazed through the years how reciprocal humans are in our kindness to each other. They're, it's just amazing. You just do this, some small act of kindness towards someone, they're going to go out of their way to keep being kind back to you. And so, so to me, the tragedy of our circumstances is that we don't, we kind of don't know each ourselves all that well. It's like we, we need, I would ask those aliens if they could maybe provide a, um, a human... Uh, operating system 101 manual to <laughs> to all of us and we could study up just a little bit because it's also equally predictable what happens when you put humans in circumstances where they're feeling under threat under siege not safe um uh, you know attacked um uh, um 
and and those are the those are the circumstances that our our public square is now building for us all around us and i i think you can feel it every day yeah yeah and there's something about human connection that is irreplaceable it is yeah it is and it can't be you know that's why we don't think this can be fixed you know digitally it has to be like where we live our lives yeah we 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 have to make some space for each other yeah as i was thinking about that question i i kept on going back to jazz <laughs> you know if we could play like a live rendition of louis armstrong's la vie en rose <laughs> that would convince any creature in the entire universe that we are worth saving you know that is so great and in fact that's a way better answer than mine. <laughs> No, it, it, it is amazing what we can do, isn't it? It is. It is. One time I was in the car with my oldest kid and it, uh, Ella Fitzgerald's How High the Moon came on, a live, another live rendition of, of that song. And, and Savannah, yeah, there's a scat that, that Ella does that, and Savannah knew every single note. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, that's when I looked over and I said, there is transcendence you know there's i'm getting chills just remembering it but okay uh, but i like your answer too that that will we'll submit that for the uh for consideration um okay so the history of village square what was the what was the actual impetus when you said okay this is this is a thing and we got to do this thing so i volunteered in a number of political campaigns and I think I increasingly came to believe that things were just broken. And so watching local events with that in mind, um, we in Tallahassee uh, many, many moons ago, we had a, a public disagreement about whether to buy into a coal-fired plant that was potentially coming in um, to town. And it took on characteristics that I just kept watching what was happening and thinking this this is broken and this is not the way this is supposed to work. Um, and the characteristics were, you know, it became like a, a, I mean, really in some ways what our politics are now. It was a mudslinging fight with, um, you know, ad campaigns on that uh, were sort of silly, you know, Did, didn't really get to the grist of the decision that we had to make as a community. And at the same time as that was happening publicly, um, I I was around a group of local leaders who had very different opinions on the coal plant, but they were having these beautiful discussions about it. Deep, rich, you know, this is the way I think this will play out. These are the things I believe to be true. And they would engage with, with each other and, you know, around real disagreement. And sometimes it would even be heated but it was real and there was real information. And I kept watching the public debate vis-a-vis -vis that private conversation that I you know, got to hear some of. And I just kept thinking that this is the, this is the conversation that the whole community should be having. And we didn't start the Village Square until after that debate was over, it went to referendum. Um, but, but we modeled like our first season of the Village Square programs were um were called it was called America's Energy Future. And we ended that series of four dinners that we had um with some of the people pro and, and con that that coal plant 
uh, up on stage and we they they let me actually I think I have the picture behind my head here. It's a a, a reproduction of the usual suspects movie. Oh. Um, <laughs> they they let me take pictures of them and we photoshop them into the movie poster. And um, they were the usual uh, suspects on coal or something like that. And so that was how the village square was born. And I also remember the very first dinner program that year. And that was, we talked about nuclear energy and Corey, I swear, I like, I had, you know, had this idea, built out the organization, founded a nonprofit, you know, got a board together, did all this work. And there we were with the first dinner and there were 150 people in a big, huge room. We had a stage, we had people who really disagreed with each other on, on nuclear energy. And I'm I'm standing there looking at the room and then it suddenly dawns on me. We are never going to make it through this. We're going to be in the newspaper above the fold tomorrow and there will have been a fight that broke out. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember this sort of sense of abject panic. Um, but it didn't happen and it never happened because we accidentally did the things that put humans in proximity to each other in a way that's positive that they can they can see each other's humanity and and that's what we keep doing and that's what we should be doing all the time to counteract the you know the the really terrible um relationship with each, we have with each other without that proximity i've heard you say a few times people are hard to hate up close <laughs> yeah yeah they are they yeah. are you because well, you, you can see their you can see their good intentions i think up close even if you think they're just completely wrong yeah you can see is you can see their intentions are good you can see some things about them that you relate to even if you don't relate to the political opinions yeah well that's what that's what the anonymity and the separation of digital engagement doesn't afford us right there there are no stakes and there are no consequences you know that's that's exactly right and it becomes uh, almost almost by virtue of the scale that we're operating in it becomes impossible to see people in their true dimensions right we see them as um caricatures of a political opinion and and completely two-dimensional we hollow out all the richness that exists yeah and 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 it's it's almost hard not to do it because we're dealing with human relationships at a scale that we've you know never had to manage. In fact, one of the things I I have learned that I really love the concept of is Dunbar's number. I don't know if you've ever heard of no. that, but it's a Dunbar um, was a British anthropologist who started to notice how many times human groups seem to sort of cluster in 150 is the 150 number. yeah mm -hmm. yeah there there are different um breakoffs uh, i think 50 was one 85 was another and 150 mm -hmm. was another yep. and it's anthropologically um, it it mm -hmm. it repeats anthropologically to to this very day yeah and and so to me i think that th that he um is putting his finger on something that's very important about humans and that is that we, you know, so we can have about that many relationships that are real relationships. Well, what do we do when we're called upon in our work, in our civic life, in, you know, our in, in every way to have way more relationships like that? Um, is we we no longer are are 
are we're we're no longer dealing with each other in sort of the human superpower realm where we do pretty well by each other. We're 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 dealing with each other in a very different way. So I've come to really believe that that is an important thing, and that that reviving like you know in in my business it's you want to revive a group of people who are connected with each other and very different, yeah. very different. And, and if our communities were filled with those kinds of gatherings, those kinds of groups of people, we'd be looking at a really different um, political life right now because people who would want to divide us, um, Amanda Ripley calls them conflict entrepreneurs, right. um, and and Debbie Lynn Molyneux, um, who helped co-found Bridge Alliance, uh, prefers um, conflict uh, profiteers, which which I really like. Yeah, um, conflict uh, people who want us to hate each other um, have fertile soil when we simply don't know each other, right? Um, when when we know each other, that changes. When even one person, like. Even having a really close relationship with one person who really disagrees with you politically, it's changed my life. Yeah. Yeah. So I got to ask this before we get even deeper into this. Was there ever a time uh, at, at a Village Square event when you got people from various sides together and it went completely sideways? <laughs> So yes, yes. Um, so I'm trying to think of the best examples of that. So I would say anytime it ever goes sideways, it's because we didn't do our homework in connecting the people who were involved in the program enough to each other. Right. That makes sense. So like when we, um, uh, I'll give you an example of, how we try to prevent things from going sideways. And I'll give you an example of when they did go sideways. Um, and again, the human superpower to be able to, you know, we get a small number of people together who are kind of the core of what a program is. Sometimes that's a panel, you know, some um, sometimes it's a table, whatever. Um, humans are incredibly capable of connecting to all the people that we pull together. Um, we were doing a program on immigration in the middle of the rise of the Tea Party. And when there were town halls specifically on immigration that were were getting violent, it was getting bad. And there was even one locally that definitely went south. Um, and um, and so we were trying to figure out how to put this panel together and the um, liberal leaning rabbi of a local temple who was on our board. Uh, was going to be the facilitator. So we started by saying, hmm, we need to find someone who either they're going to really get along well um, or they already know each other to be on this panel together um, because we were a little afraid of what was going to happen, right? And um, so we finally um, invited Senator Rubio's general counsel. And, you know, Tallahassee is the uh, Florida state capital. So Senator Rubio was once state Senator Rubio. And we invited his general counsel to be our first guest on the panel. And we did that because the rab rabbi and the general counsel were in the same fantasy baseball league together. <laughs> okay. And we and they completely disagreed on immigration. Yeah. But we knew that once we grounded that disagreement 
in oh, if you if you hang out with anybody who does fantasy baseball, it's like you kind of go good grief. <laughs> um, and I had um, so I knew that we had nailed it once um, once we had that kind of disagreement with that kind of connection. And when it goes south is when we haven't quite nailed it and we didn't make that fundamental connection. And so um, an example is that we, you know, our God squad is now, um, we're now in year 14 of our God squad program, which is just one of the favorite. I I, I was waiting. For, I was waiting for you to tell me that father Tim and rabbi Stephanie, just like they had to have like a cage match and just like really pound it out, you know, <laughs> fight it out or something. Could you imagine? <laughs> no, that they, they did not. Um, <laughs> no, they did not. Ever, I'm just kidding. Ever. Obviously I'm kidding. Yes. Um, but, but actually we did, we had a new God's regular God squad member come in and I was just super busy with stuff. And so we didn't do the pre-meetings that we normally do where we got we get to know them as humans and we get and the new God Squad member gets to know each other. I mean, the uh, the other members and it and we had some difficulties for a while simply by virtue of not doing we call we call it our core catalyst model, but doing that sort of if you have a diverse core of people who can see the humanity in each other. They can carry a whole room full of a hundred, a thousand people along because it, it it's a, it's actually amazing. Like if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes all these years, I wouldn't believe it. But, but, and, and that's on me, right? That I think that if I had done the, if I had not just assumed that it would go fine, um, then I think that it, you know, the better, better angels of, of their nature would have taken over immediately if we had just done done the thing we knew we were supposed to do was that a sneaky uh little promo for braver angels <laughs> <laughs> well i am a, a i am i believe i am fan number one yeah yeah braver braver angels i i um you know got the opportunity to see david blankenhorn david lapp and uh bill doherty you know kind of cook this thing up uh, john roush was actually at some of the early awesome. meetings too that so is awesome. that, that was one of the joys of my life because I think it's a beautiful program. Well, speaking of another text that I think should be studied, whether it's in book clubs or actually as part of a curriculum is Monty's book from last year. Uh, I never thought of it that way. It, it is an extraordinary book. I've been so busy that I keep thinking, I really want to write a book. I mean, this is actually ridiculous. I keep thinking, I really want to write a book. Um, and what is it going to be about? And I have all these different ideas. I kind of wanted to write John's book. Can you imagine what a <laughs> terrible job I would have done writing John uh, Roush's book? Yeah. Um, and and when Moni, Moni wrote her book, I just um, I, I I it was just amazing. I yeah. she's just so wise and wonderful and correct. And she loves people who disagree with her politically. Yeah. And and can see them. Yeah. So absolutely. I, and when I read that book, there were so many things from doing the work that we do on the other show that I had been arriving at, but hadn't been able to fully articulate the way that Monty did. And then she just obviously expounded on it so much more. And I've, um, what's the word for it? I, I would say I've gone so far as using duplicative language, <laughs> but I've, um, I've shamelessly stolen her ideas because they are, they are very practical and implementable they uh, really are so, so insightful 
and and she just she just nails it. Yeah, she really does. So I I need to ask you to help us diagnose some of the problem. Um, in particular, in what ways has social? We talked about social. We touched upon it a little bit. How, has social media? How, how has it messed up the concept, the original concept of the village square? Wow, that is a great question. Because weirdly enough, so Facebook existed when we started. Where when were they founded? It was right about. It was the... right about that time, but it wasn't. It wasn't what it was now. I. You know, the like button didn't come in until a couple of years after yeah. uh, 2006, right? Yeah. And because I remember setting up our first Facebook account and back then it was a real um, it was a real boon. It, it was it did help us get our word out. Um, it was wonderful. And um, and over the years, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and and, you know, now I mean, we we um, we have someone on staff who's really good at knowing how to navigate it. But the truth is that um, without that, it's kind of squishing all, it's it's replacing all of the relationships and the and the um, foundational geographic connectedness that we need to be healthy. Um, it it makes it so. I mean, for us to get like the word out um, about events we do, we have no choice but to use social media, and it because because those attachments that existed before it no longer do it swallowed it and um and then also you know it it does uh, i mean the like button the you know it it punches our tribal the the tribal nature of humans and it it's just who we are it's not those other people it's all of us yeah it's all <laughs> it's of all, us it's all, it's all of us so do you think there are ways a social media platform could change in order to be more conducive to that ideal, to, to a more ideal way of connecting with each other across our differences? Well, I sure hope so. Um, but I guess at this point, I, I worry not because I mean, I do I do think that there's been real efforts made. Um, and, you know, to me, I, I think that, you know, in the same way that in the, in the same way that, you know, we all know that if all we ever ate was chocolate cake and jelly beans, that we would not <laughs> be healthy humans. Um, to me, there there should be some sort of kind of I tease that it's like a depolarize me button that, you know, that that it specifically shakes up what we see and what's in front of us so that we're that we're challenged and invited Um but but I also think that the part part of the problem with that is that again going back to my um, human nature one hundred and one man operating manual that I would really like us all to have is I think we don't know ourselves well enough to know that we need that so it's 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 not going to be something we volunteer for I I think I fear um, and so so I I think just the the nature the nature of the beast is such that I'm not sure it's going to find, uh, we're going to find our way out through them. I will push back on that a little bit. It's not necessarily I my place to right. do so, but you, what you just made me think of is uh, I was thinking of something else before, honestly, like if I had to confess, I would confess that I am an, uh, I can be an eliminationist if I'm pushed. 
<laughs> you know, I, I think all humans can be. Yeah. Right? I mean, I've wondered whether there should be something like a driver's license for free speech. And then some folks who abuse their privilege get their free speech license taken away. <laughs> but but in, in all sincerity, what you made me think of was I think it was the Solzhenitsyn uh, quote uh, and loosely translated. It's the line between good and evil runs through the heart of every human being. Right. So ultimately, I mean, not to not to make not to uh, vest breathe too much profundity into one little Twitter post or what have you or threads post or Instagram post, but but we're all responsible for for injecting us for being you know, being the kind of person we want our culture to be, for our neighborhood to be a certain way, we got to be a part of that, right? And participate yeah. in that way that we wish it was. So, yeah. And so do you feel like there's a way that social media can help us get there? I don't think corporately, because ultimately what we'd be doing is deferring to some higher power to create the structures for us and, and then to um, save us from our worst selves, as opposed to create, I don't know, they're, they're, you're, you're asking, you're asking the likes of uh, the, the likes of Elon Musk or um, Zuckerberg or the heads of these huge, huge global companies to be the equivalent philosophically and civically as Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton and James Madison. Like, I just don't, I think that's too much of a leap. So ultimately it is what it is, but I can behave in such a way that sets that I know I'm edifying that little small circle around me, you know, and I reserve the right to add my own amendments, <laughs> you know, my own bill of yeah. rights, if you will, you know, for, for example, when I got onto threads, that's a relatively recent development. I decided, you know what, I'm going to be a little bit looser and quicker to block people like I don't need to silence them but they don't need to be in my room uh you know yeah uh my my virtual room if you will and and that's that's okay I think for now I might change my mind on that and open the doors wide open but I think for now I'm having more sane civil even loving conversations because we're not being filibustered by the screamers and the extremists yeah. And, I, and I think you're hitting on something really important there that there is a it's really easy to um, to feel like the situation we're in is one that we have absolutely no control over. But how we're handling ourselves in this environment is everything. Yeah. It, it's everything. And and um, and we can, you know, create exactly what you described. Um and you know something else that you that you touched on actually before before I say it, something else that I thought you you said that made me think of some things is that my so my grandpa was a very busy pediatrician and he raised a whole a whole um, town of children for decades and decades and he would he had this habit of um, write it was always a half piece of paper and it had his um, Thomas. Jackson diseases of children letter ahead on it and his his um, secretary must have typed it and then he signed it grandpa and he sent me that exact quote oh. that you he mailed it to me I asked him something about human beings and something big and philosophical and you know we didn't have the internet 
then. Um, and he sent me a half piece of paper back that had that quote on it. And I, I just, I will never forget that. Um, it, it, and it's just so true. Um, and, and I think that what you talked about, sort of the difference between, you know, these, um, the tech entrepreneurs and, you know, they can't, they can't really be Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and James Madison. I think that, um, one of the things that I see repeatedly, that's kind of a weird thing, observation I've made over the years. I think there's kind of a, um, have you heard the concept weird, um, Western educated industrial oh. rich democracies? Um, yeah. John Haidt talks about it in his yeah. Righteous Mind. Um, and I, I feel like I've seen two decades worth of weird people. Um, uh, and, you know, we're we're both weird you know, lots of education, lots of thinking, lots of um, learning how to fix things, et cetera. Um, uh, being a little blind to human nature, being a little optimistic about who we are in our DNA. And, you know, I, I riffed on, on that optimistic view of humans that we've seen over and over again at the Village Square. Um, but you to be able to get the to that place where humans are are doing right by each other you have to kind of understand what what the um what the dna default setting is and so you have to uh, you know you have to put us in certain environments you have to um support those sort of that sort of relational glue and i think our framers understood that they structured a a civic system that put us in proximity with each other across disagreement because they knew how we rolled. And so I think there's like a, there's a thread of these weird, in quotes, um, humans that we're kind of, we see things instrumentally, we think we can fix things. We just sort of have this, you know, and I, and you saw that in um, the, you know, revolution that launched a lot of these companies. Oh yeah, we're going to connect with each other. It's going right. to be great. <laughs> and, you know, you can look back on it now and think, wow, they missed an important thing because it could still be great. It's just that we have to factor in the ways that can, you know, that we're going to go off track predictably. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and so obviously social media isn't the cause, but it's certainly exacerbating uh, some of yeah. the partisan divide. You know, what do you, what do you think some of the other causes are? Um, you know, it's weird. Sometimes I think that that we all arrive to fix this challenge about a decade or more too late. Um, because I, I do think that one of, one of the things that I have come to have a lot of empathy for is, is specifically conservatives who are making their way in our public conversation and how difficult it is for them. And, and I think I, I see that sort of on a, on a small scale because I think, you know, I just explained, um, you know, weird. And, and I think that people who are liberal tend to run a little bit more weird. Yeah. And, um, and I think we don't understand very well uh, what conservatives are thinking and worried about. In some ways they're worried about some of the things, very things we're talking about, right? Is the dissolution of the relational glue, you know, that, that is happening. The, um, I love the concept of little, the little platoons in society. They're, you know, concerned about 
that. Um, and I think there are a lot of a lot of things that conservatives are right about. And I think they come into um, this, you know, the public square, uh, whether that's, you know, the conversation, you know, in America's newspapers or whether that's the village square. And I think that they are, are they feel pretty assaulted, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, people, people think the worst of them very quickly. Um, and if you, if you listen to, you know, our, our public conversation, um, I understand why they would extract themselves from it. Yeah. And so, I, so sometimes I think that, um, you know, even 20 years ago when we started, it was just, there was, there had been a fair amount of extraction that had already happened. And, um, when it, which meant that those, those diverse views were not, you know, in, enthusiastically engaged in our civic conversation. And it also means that, and it's a sort of an understandable thing to do, you know, with the rise of, of a conservative media, you know, you're, you're finding another place to gather and talk and like-minded groups grow more extreme in the direction of the majority view. And you can see that on the right and you can see it on the left. Yeah. Um, where if you insulate yourself from that check against your human fallibility, your limited view, um, and uh, and surround yourself by people who see things the same way you do, uh, your your group grows more extreme. And so I think that we we're now in a civic environment that's being dominated by groups that have cir circled the wagons and see each other as a threat. Yeah. And, and those are all really normal things to do if you feel under threat. And, um, and, and now they're just, they're just, um, you know, working off of each other, escalating back and forth, back and forth, equal and opposite reactions. The more, the more endangered I feel, the more my behavior, um, is aggressive, the more you feel endangered and wash, rinse and repeat. Right. No. So this isn't, terribly scientific, but I can give you a quick story on my own experience. I remember in, it might have been the late 80s, but it's certainly by the early 90s, I was already reading Burke and was very compelled, was watching Firing Line and found myself uh, identifying more with, with Buckley, William F. Buckley. So you could say that I was sort of a, a Buckleyan or Burkean conservative. But when I started listening to Rush, it was not too long after Rush came on the air and he was becoming very, very popular, Rush Limbaugh, you would think that because of my philosophical leanings, I would have been a bigger fan of Rush. The thing is, growing up in, in uh, my family's all from New York, I grew up in Central Jersey, I was surrounded, my family, a lot of my friends were very liberal. And my reaction wasn't so much to what he was saying as much as the way he was describing my family and my friends. You know, and I had um, I had an antipathy for it for that reason, um, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. So, but and, and to your point, I think what that did is his his content, uh, someone like Rush and then Fox News shortly thereafter in the early night, early to mid 90s, didn't so much persuade those and expand a circle as much as it seems to have given the choir, if you will, something to go ahead and cheer for. And 
uh, sound bites versus paragraphs, also something, a, a concept that you discuss, um, sound bites that are easily repeatable. It was a scalable model of yeah. partisanship, right? But I do find it, I do find it interesting that fast forward to the last couple of years, or even just this year, frankly, um, and a few scholars that would also identify as left of center have given the most robust arguments against what we would call cancel culture. Uh, and that, that being Greg Lukianov, who was Haidt's collaborator on coddling of the American yes. mind, um, and now was a collaborator with, uh, with a student of, of Haidt's uh, on the canceling of the American mind. And then just a, about a month before their book was released, Yasha Monk on the identity trap, on identity politics. So I you're, think you're definitely citing all, so many of my heroes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's I think it's incumbent upon us to be reflective uh, of those, for lack of a better word, that we would consider in our own tribe. Like we're the ones who can develop the antibodies for for our family and our friends. Yes. You know, we're not going to have somebody that we already see as an enemy, let alone an adversary or even a loyal opposition wagging their fingers at us and, and think that we can be persuaded. So, so that all that to add, to lead up to a question, what do you think, and we've already been talking about this, but what do you think some of those, some more of those antibodies are? What are some of the cures? Uh, not that we can, again, it's not a big solution that we can't snap our fingers. It's all going to be cured, but what are some of the antibodies that we can begin to, uh, solve some of these problems, even if it's just on a personal or even local level. Yeah, so I really deeply believe way more than I did when we started the Village Square, that it ultimately is going to be in hometowns between people who can know each other, um, that that this problem gets solved. It's not it's not like that. I mean, there's a lot of legislative thing that needs to happen, too. But I think that if we were to really isolate where the roots of it are, it's there, where if if the way I lead my life involves um, people who don't see it my way, who, you know, we we may disagree on politics, but our kids are on the same softball team and we hang out, the kind of cross-cutting relationships that um, can be very powerful. I, I, I think that I, I think it's kind of counterintuitive to think that that's where the, the solution lies, but I really think that a fair amount of it does. It's not it's not going to fix everything, but I'm not sure that we're going to get to a new place unless things start changing in how we lead our lives, how we spend our time. Um, we had another of my um, all time heroes is Dr. Robert Putnam. And we hosted Bob. He says his friends call him Bob, so I can now call him Bob. Um, and Shailen Romney Garrett, his co-author on the book, The Upswing, which is just another beautiful, beautiful book. And I, I think that describes what we need to be doing with each other. And, and, and that is that we need to be gathering. We need to, you know, that there, um, we also screened a film about, um, Bob's career called Join or Die, beautiful film. And, and I think it'll be out in theaters at some point in time, um, that talks about how America, you know, Americans historically, we have been joiners. We, you know, Alexis de Tocqueville, when he came to America, he observed that, you know, if we weren't going to have a king, 
we recognized that we had some responsibility in the matter. We needed to kind of show up and and try to make things happen. And and we, Americans uniquely did that. And then with the evolution of the differences in how we um, relate to each other and the internet, we just kind of stopped joining. We stopped being a part of groups. And when we are a part of groups, we're a part of groups that hate the other group, right? Um, negative partisanship that, you know, um, that we, that we're mostly about how much we dislike those other people. And so we stopped doing what foundationally, it doesn't just solve the polarization problem. It, it, it helps us be a part of things in a real way in our lives. And Shaylin um, had a beautiful quote during our program where she just sort of said, this is we're going to have to do this and it's going to be at the expense of some of our time. There's going to have to be some of our time that we, that we just say, you know what? It, I haven't hung out with people who are different than me um, for a week. I'm going to go do something. I'm going to stretch. And, um, and I, I think that that's a, a, you know, deeply foundational part of what we can be doing what we see over and over again, just change. It changes you. Yeah. It changes you. Um, and if we were working on, you know, if, 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 if I could wave a magic wand and in communities across the country, we were gathering, you know, I don't know, once a month with people who are really different than us. And we would, we're building a home for Habitat for Humanity. We were, um, we were, you know, delivering meals on wheels, you know, with a group of people. We were doing something that made, you know, that made a co positive contribution, but we were doing it side by side. You know, that that is, you know, that the, the, the social psychologists teach us that that kind of common goal, not, not on something political, but on something, one of my favorite videos is Heineken Worlds Apart ad where they build a bar together. Have you seen yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's great. Uh, and it's because we see it all the time. If you can just do something shoulder to shoulder with someone who's not like you, you see their humanity and it changes everything. It changes everything. Um, yeah, it certainly does. So I'm often frustrated in individual conversations because there are certain obstacles and part of it is just the disposition of the individual i'm speaking with the disposition is more defined by yeah but as opposed to yes and mm -hmm. it's more defined by a transactional contest as opposed to a relational connection right mm -hmm. and we could still relationally connect even if we're different and that's what you're describing in building a barn together i was thinking of daryl davis as he plays music music is a really great metaphor but it's also a great exercise because ev every single um, participant is doing something different there's the drums who's laying down the groove there's the bass that's the musical extension of the groove there's the guitar or the piano that's setting the musical context there's a horn player who's telling the story or maybe a vocalist who's telling the story they're all completely different but they're participating in the same composition and they're totally free but within the context of that composition yeah. yeah. And, and it wouldn't be the same if there were just all drums or, you know, yeah. the beauty of it comes from the differences between them. And, and to your point, the fact that they're engaged in this common, um, this common activity, it's weird because I think sometimes it's really easy to think that the solutions are, of our, to our problems lie in 
having a really good factual discussion about some policy or difference and seeing if we can land the plane, right? Seeing if we if we can somehow agree on it. And where marginally there's some of that would be good. Sure. Um, uh, I I think that we're he- we're heading the wrong direction with that because a healthy um, a healthy America with 325 million Americans in it is going to be a place where we were will perpetually be disagreeing. Yeah, and and that in some ways we we are becoming stronger and better through our disagreements um, because because we can see things more broadly. And um, and agreeing is just not it's it's not a final destination. It will it won't ever be right. Um, it 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 can't. That's kind of it's it's the final destination for if you're thinking in eliminationist kind of way, right? Yeah, we're going to yeah. side on that, and then all you folks are going to go away. But have, <laughs> there's you know 325 million different ways to lead a life and to become yourself and to and to relate to the world and to understand things. And we want to live in a place where we appreciate that richness and that depth and that difference. Uh, I, I know that I rarely learn that much from people who agree with me. It's it's those moments when I I connect some dots with people who really disagree with me that my brain starts to explode. Right. Absolutely. So speaking of people that you disagree with, how do you convince folks that are many of whom just in Tallahassee, let alone the entire country, are in very, very different silos, watch different TV shows, watch different, get their news from different sources, go to different churches or don't go to church at all, have so, listen to different music. Uh, how, how do you convince folks that are completely different silos to come out to the kinds of events that Village Square puts on where they know that the quote unquote enemy will be there? Um, so it is hard. It is the hardest thing that we do and in fact, one would think that the hardest thing that we do is to get people who are that different to see each other, respect each other, maybe even like each other, but certainly hate each other less, right? That feels like a real lift, right? That isn't a lift at all when you can get a tailwind out of human nature when we're together, um, you know, co- uh, common goals and uh, and a positive interaction. It's amazing. Um how easily that happens. It's getting them in the room together. It is getting them in proximity to each other because that is what people do not want to do right now for reasons that I understand. Um, and so, so, you know, one of, one of our core models, um, and the way that we do that, this, but it has gotten in fact harder. I mean, in fact, the more that all of us are recognizing the, that, you know, when we started 20 years ago, I kind of had to convince people we had a problem. No more. <laughs> no one needs to be convinced. Um, but one would think that it would get easier to get people into the room to sort of, you know, engage with each other because people realize just how um, dangerous the situation we're in now is. But in fact, it's harder. And and um, and so the way that we have done that through the years and, and you know, we've gotten pretty um, it's become a formal part of how we do what we do in these big, you know, community gatherings. We build them with our core catalyst model, which I mentioned before, where we start in any endeavor um, with a small group of people very thoughtfully uh, constructed who wouldn't normally 
um, find themselves working on something together, but who have some sort of relational glue. And so we, we build it very much like um, the panel that I mentioned, where we, we find one relationship across the difference where there's some glue, and then we sort of build it from there. And it, so we've had, um, we started focusing on race-related division as well as political division after um, the Trayvon Martin tragedy. And it felt, we're in Tallahassee, it felt very close and something we had to take care of. And so we had this big project um, that we launched called Local Color. And um, and we we were incredibly intentional, like the harder the lift and and we you know perceived that doing this race related work was going to be a hard lift, the more intentional you have to be to building that core of people who trust each other, see each other across differences, then it's almost like growing the rings of a tree out, you know, um, how as a tree ages, it gets bigger and bigger and you can see the levels. And so after we get sort of a small core, we go to a slightly larger core and then to a even larger core. And, and we do that, um, you know, repeatedly for big projects that we have. And, and we found it to be really successful because then anybody who engages can see a relational core in what they're doing. They, they see people they trust and, and feel less under threat, less feel, feel less like they're engaging with the other and some people who are with them are doing it. And then, and then it's actually not that hard after that. Yeah. Getting them in the room, getting them in the room. I, I would imagine that's the biggest hurdle. Mm -hmm. So speaking of getting folks in the room, you get some pretty impressive folks in the room. We talked about some of them today. Uh, Robert Putnam, Jonathan Haidt, Monty Guzman, Daryl Davis. I could go on for about a half hour on all the impressive people. I have guest envy with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, right back at you, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But how, how do you, are, do you have any secrets? Uh, I'll be happy to share mine. It's basically beg, borrow and steal, but. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, yeah. And uh, so, because it was, it was, we were one of the few organizations early on. There were, I don't know, five or 10 when we started that did this kind of work. And so I think that people at uh, academics, thought leaders who um, were, you know, were, were also wondering about how to do this. We, there, there weren't that many choices. So I'd say, I'd say the fact that you're coming in a little bit later and you're able to get the quality of guests that you've gotten is more impressive. Um, so, you know, that was probably about five years into um uh, our work. Uh, um, I I read a New York Times column that John Haidt wrote, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, um, that is extraordinary! I love what he is saying." And and I, you know, I so I just we just I, you know, we put ourselves out there, say what we're trying to do, and it's amazing how many people have um, been, um, you know, kind to me as a stranger, and then have become friends. Yeah, and yeah. and you know. I, I, it has really just been an extraordinary privilege to be able to keep company with just some amazing, amazing thinkers. And actually, you know, I even you had mentioned doing this um, chat with me. And one of the things that finally persuaded me is that is that um, our following this episode will be um, but we're, we'll have John Hyde again. So oh, yeah, that's right. And uh, and then after that, we're going to play a throwback episode from Bill Bishop, who wrote the book, The Big Sort. 
um, why the clustering of like-minded America is tearing us apart. And those two um, gentlemen were uh, some of my first learnings about how we do what we do. And, and I still have a stack of both of those books. And when I go into um, meetings that are important to me, um, when new staff come on, they get a copy of both of those books. And, um, and, and now, you know, we've added John Rausch, Constitutional yeah. Knowledge, and Todd Rose, Collective Illusions. Oh, um, man. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's and, a great, that's actually a great uh, practice is just to collect copies of some of our favorite books. You know, D David Brooks's recent one, How to Know a Person, would definitely go right at the top of that list as well. But Todd Rose's work, uh, John yeah. Rausch's work, um, Pete Wainer's work. Uh, Monty's, yeah. Monty Guzman's, of yes. course. Yes. Um, there's so many good ones. Oh, man. And um, so, yeah, speaking to why we should save the species from the aliens. I was going to get back to that. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Give them, give them a copy of How to Know a Person by David yes. Brooks. And I think they'll, especially that I, chapter that gets me every time I even think about it, how to be with a person in their pain, you know? Uh, cause it's all, it's all well and good to laugh and, and we, we laugh anyway, we laugh in our pain and in the hard times, but how to be with someone in their pain, that, that was such a, uh, I'll never, I'll never forget that, uh, that chapter in particular, but okay. It, so. it, his, we, we had a program, um, uh, based on his, uh, how America got mean Atlantic piece recently. Oh, God wow. Squad talked about it. it. Um, just the thinking, uh, just extraordinary thinking um he he does it it, it really is just am amazing so yeah. you need to be sure to tell him that we think that he's going to save us from the alien invasion <laughs> next time i talk to him and i told him uh when we we he's been, i've been reading his stuff for 15 20 years and when we finally met it was such a thrill but because we talked about that one chapter i ended up crying my eyes out at one point um and uh, I told him at the end, before we, uh, after we finished recording, I said, I can't wait to see you again. I really hope that we get to talk again. And I promise next time I won't cry, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but he was very gracious about it. Well, that goes right along with one of the um, best podcast episodes I've ever heard. And oh. the other one is yours too, um, which is uh, Pete Wainer and John Roush. Together. Paying a tribute to their dear friends. Yeah, Mike Gerson and Tim Keller. Yeah, that was a great conversation. If people want to transcend, they need to listen to that episode. Oh of, man, of talking well, politics and religion. I, I should I should say this that uh, John and 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 um, John, John in particular, but also Pete especially, they're not speaking of not being transactional. We talked about some tough stuff. We got into the thick of it, and they're like national if not world-renowned figures and i'm just some schmuck from jersey you know like you know but because we got into some some tough issues they both followed up with me individually they said hey corey how you doing man you know i wanted to follow up with you like they're very human and they're very yeah. thoughtful and you know they're not just some big wigs that just you know sit in their ivory tower they're very human and caring so shout out to our, our pals john and, and pete um, they're very special people, as are so many of the folks that you have on the on Village Squarecast. They, yeah, they they really are. And you know, I think that um, I mean, I think you're hitting on um, uh, just that they they are deeply involved in human relationships, 
and 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 not in transacting another actually another book that um that i'm i'm reading right now in preparation for um for another program we're doing this spring is alexandra hudson the soul oh. of simplicity and she's she speaks i mean what you see in those two gentlemen and their relationship um with each other and it it it's people who humanize each other who who deeply are deeply reverent towards who other people are as well and i i just think we're you know we live in a culture that is 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 just so self-focused right now and it's tragic because we don't see that it's not making us happy yeah so a couple last questions and then we'll wrap up one is do you by the way you will, if you haven't read Soul of Civility, uh, Alexandra's book, you're going to absolutely love it. I, I think it is also, she did so much homework, uh, so much preparation, so, interviewed so many um, profound people, you know, prominent people that are doing great work in this field. And she studied the history of how we engage with each other. It's a really Be beautiful, beautiful book. Yeah, yes. yeah. I'm, I'm maybe about a third to a halfway through. And, uh, and I just, I'm just constantly going, oh my gosh, I'm so grateful to you for having written the, this yeah. book. Yeah. She did a lot of great work for all of us uh, to, to benefit from. Um, do you have any questions for me? Oh, I didn't get to, I didn't, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you that. <laughs> um, yeah, I would have a way better question probably if I, you know, I want to, I want to know what you, Corey, think of this moment that we're in. In terms of, in terms of the challenges, in terms of the hope that you see, I, I just, I, I would love to get your sense of it. I see a lot of anxiety because a lot of us are having trouble. This is going to sound cliche, but a lot of us are having trouble living in the now. We're thinking way too much about what could happen, whether it's a year from now or even a few months from now. We're also spending a lot of time in, um, in rehearsing what's happened leading up to this moment and rehearsing for these imaginary conversations that often never actually happen except for some rhetorical grenade that we fire off in a very self-indulgent way. Yeah. But I think that if, if we can, there's another great quote, I'm going to totally mess it up, but the intersection of time with eternity is the present. So if we can live in that transcendence of this moment, yeah. we'll, it, we'll be able to derive much more out of that other human being that's in front of us, right? We'll be able to and in a way, it kind of gives us a, a clearer perspective of what's actually happening right now, you know, yes. on a day-to-day on a -day or even moment-to-moment -moment basis. So it, in a, in a similar way, it is where many of us have a proclivity to think on a much larger scale than, than what we can actually do anything about. You know, the way our politics has become national as opposed to yeah. much more local, you know. Uh, so I, I think that 
there's something to be appreciated in one conversation, one connection at a time, and the profundity of what that can do, you know? I, I don't know if that necessarily directly answers your question. No, it, it really does. It's beautiful. And I think that you nailed it. And I and I think that we we have way more agency than we understand. Yeah. We're we're all being um herded along by these dynamics that are controlling us and 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 we're not we're not living our lives that are right in front of us with the yeah. people who are who are who are with us. Right, right. And it will make us happier. It will make our civic body politic healthier. And it will make it so that when people who want, who, who want to, you know, gain office or make money dividing us, won't have any, any, they, they will know each other well enough that there's, there's nothing, they can't do it. There's, there's no ground there anymore. And, and, and that, and that can be literally one relationship. I, I have foundational relationships now in my life that that make it impossible for me to hate all those people because I love them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it, it goes a step further to where we have this delusion that, okay, so I'm in a conversation with a person and now I can completely convince them of my side, you know? <laughs> But there is something sweeter and more subtle about allowing that possibility, having the disposition that Monty talks about, and my next question is going to be inspired by, by uh, Monica Guzman, uh, of having the disposition, leaving open the possibility that you can say, oh, I never thought of it that way. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that disposition, not so coincidentally, makes you much more persuasive, you know? Absolutely. One one degree at a time, one degree at a time, but leaving open the possibility that you'll also be changed one degree at a time. So Absolutely. And there is no question that, you know, when I uh, when the village square sprung out of my experience in my brain, there is no question that I thought that I would be doing the former, which yeah. is, you know, just creating an environment where people would start to understand and see things. <laughs> I, I have to be honest about it. I mean, I, I, I think it was subconscious, but I, I have to admit to it. And there is no question that the experience has transformed me way more than mm. I have transformed others. That's great. And for that I am eternally grateful. I feel like a fuller, happier person. I'm I'm less angry and um and I and I I I've learned things in so many different new ways and known known and loved so many people I I wouldn't have um crossed paths with and that that is that's what you were just talking about Corey and that is what we need to do. That's what we need to do. So the last question it's something I I can't remember if it was on the recording with Monty or not but when she came on the show after the book her book came out uh, I asked her, because I really respect her as not just a writer, but a journalist and all the work she's doing with Braver Angels. I asked her if she had any advice, uh, how I can improve my game as a, as an interviewer. And uh, one of the, she gave me a lot of great advice, but one of the things she said is, you can always ask somebody at the very end, is there anything I forgot to ask you? Is there anything else that you want to add? So that's my last question. <laughs> oh, um. I don't think there is because I think, you know, it's funny because uh, I'm used to preparing programs, right? 
So I'm used to like, you know, going through people's material and, and breaking it down and, and, uh, and getting all organized and everything. And I didn't quite have time to help you out with this. And, (laughs) and you exceeded my um, ability to have made it a great conversation. So I got, I got nothing, Corey. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. I got nothing. Well, this was an absolute joy. It's always fun to hang out with you. And, uh, The only thing that would make it a ton better is if we were actually doing it in person. And I look forward to doing that real soon. I agree. I'm going to I'm going to make that happen. I'm I'm going to be flying out to California sometime soon. Well, that was fun, wasn't it? I don't know if you could tell, but I. I really enjoyed that discussion with Liz. I always just gleaned so much from my own conversations with her. So it was really special to be able to share a conversation like that with you. So now it's time to say so long for now. <laughs> so long. It's been good to know you. Or what, what was the, uh, no, I'm not going to do an Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, I just won't, I won't even dare. Maybe, maybe a little Louis Armstrong. No, I won't do that either. Um, but before we go, please consider joining our members and supporting this programming. You can become a member for just $7 a month or $76 a year. And for that price, you'll get to not hear me sing. How about that? You could, <laughs> that's what it'll take. No, 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 I'm just kidding. Um, it's a great membership, so many benefits, and uh, it's solving some of the central problems in our public square, in our village square, if you will. So again, uh, membership $7 a month, or $76 a year, and your business can join for $250, go to villagesquare.us slash donate to join today. That's www.villagesquare.us slash donate. And while you're there, sign up for Village Square's newsletter to stay up to date with everything that's happening at the Village Square. Go to villagesquare.us and scroll to the bottom for that sign-up box. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program or bad singing on my part (laughs) do not necessarily represent those of Florida Humanities or the National Endowment for the Humanities. We appreciate you listening to Being Human in Divided Times, a fireside chat with Village Square founder, Liz Joyner. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thanks so much for listening to Village Squarecast.